Hey everyone, welcome to the Scripture Study Project, our podcast where we give you a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. I'm Zach, and I am without my amazing wife, Krista, this week, so I'm going to podcast on my own. But I am really excited about this block. This is one of my favorite blocks. This is episode 14, and this is Jacob chapter 5. It's Jacob chapters 5 and 6, but this is the longest chapter in the Book of Mormon. And if you're familiar with it, this is the story or the allegory of the olive tree. There is a lot in this. It's jam-packed with incredible truths that I think will make a big difference for you this week. Um, so we're really, I'm really excited to get to that. But before we get there, of course, our study slash teaching tip. This one, you get a fancy word or two that goes with your study tip. The words, I feel like Sesame Street, the word of the day or the words of the day is eisegesis and exegesis. Those are two words used to describe common approaches to biblical study or scripture study generally. Uh, And they mean similar things, but kind of in contrast to each other. So eisegesis means that you are taking a text and reading something into the text that maybe isn't necessarily inherent to the original text or inherent to the author, but it's something that you're using the text for. So we actually are really good at this without knowing it. This is where we have a topic we want to teach, and we do a quick search of LDS.org, and we find a scripture or two that has the words or the phrases in it that we like in that verse. And we grab those verses, and we use them to teach our topic. Now, of course, that's not bad at all, but there is another way to approach the scriptures that is exegesis. And exegesis is where you take what the scriptures are actually saying to see what the author actually intended to say. And this one's a little bit trickier because it requires of us to read what's actually written and maybe read a couple of verses before the verse that we're looking at and a couple of verses after the verse that we're looking at to get at what that verse really means and what it's really saying. Now, again, I emphasize it is not bad to go to the scriptures in search of teachings or truths or phrases and connect them together in wonderful, beautiful ways. Um, I think the scriptures allow for that. There are so many different interpretations. However, there is a power in connecting with what the original speaker, what the original author, the writer, or the storyteller meant that story to mean. Uh, This is a tricky skill to master, but it's not a tricky skill to practice. And the way you practice it is the next time you hit your scriptures, um, when you hit a verse that you really like, go back a couple of verses, read what leads up to that verse, go to the next couple of verses. If you're reading a chapter, read the last couple of verses of the preceding chapter, read the next couple of verses of the next chapter. Remember, the original scripture authors didn't put chapter breaks in. They just wrote we put the chapter breaks in. And sometimes those chapter breaks cause us to look at a block through an eisegetical lens. We group it together and give it a label that maybe the original author didn't intend. And we're actually, or I'm actually going to display that today with Jacob chapter five. You'll see some eisegetical lens work. And then what I think is maybe a little bit more exegetical study of Jacob chapter five. So there you go. Eisegesis, exegesis. When you're teaching it, 
be so careful in how you use the scriptures. The scriptures are the most powerful teaching tool that we have because when used properly to teach truths, you have prophets or apostles or divinely appointed writers or storytellers that are teaching truth. And when it's taught the way the scripture authors intended it to be taught, the spirit can come in powerfully and grab hold of that scripture, drive it into the hearts of the people that are listening and make a real difference. When we rest the scriptures, when we twist them, whether we're doing it on purpose or whether we do it accidentally, that power is sometimes lost. Um, and so sometimes we walk out of a lesson thinking, boy, it just wasn't quite there. Why wasn't it? The answer is go back to the scriptures and maybe look at a bigger block. Instead of giving your class one or two verses, give them seven or eight, give them a chapter, give them two chapters um, so they can really get the whole scope of what it is the author's trying to tell them. So with that in mind, let's dive in to Jacob chapter five. And what I'd like to do with this is this. I'm going to give you a oh, four minute, five minute traditional quote unquote deep study of Jacob chapter five. I have taught it this way in years past, and my recent study of Jacob chapter 5 has completely shifted it. But I want to give you the basis, the way that a lot of times Jacob chapter 5 is introduced. So if you're looking at Jacob chapter 5, verse 1, of course, this is the parable of the olive tree. Zenos is the prophet that Jacob is quoting. Zenos is a presumably an Old Testament prophet. We don't have any of his records in the Bible. The only account we have of him is here in the Book of Mormon. And there's quite a few Book of Mormon authors that quote from him. So he was influential, but one of those books we don't have in the Old Testament. In verse 3, O house of Israel, I liken thee unto a tame olive tree. So this allegory is, of course, meant to be read, not as a story about trees, but a story of Israel. To add a little bit of context, if you go back one chapter, remember chapter breaks are... are uh, something we invented. Jacob ends chapter four. This is verse 15. And he says, I, Jacob, am led on by the Spirit unto prophesying, for I perceive by the workings of the Spirit, which is in me, that by the stumbling of the Jews, they will reject the stone upon which they might build and have a safe foundation. Of course, that stone is symbolic of the Savior. He's prophesying that the Jews will reject the Savior. And then he asks this driving question in verse 17. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, meaning these Jews, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? So that's the question Jacob wants to answer with Jacob chapter 5, and he's going to quote Zenos to do it. How is it that the Jews, after they've rejected this stone, this Jesus that will come, how is it that they can ever hope to be brought back? And so Jacob chapter 5 is this beautiful story of a master that goes into his vineyard in verse 3, and he sees that his tree is growing old and that it's decaying. And he laments that his tree, i.e. Israel, is perishing. And so the rest of the chapter, all of the other 70 plus verses, is this master of the vineyard saving this tree. And so just to give you a brief rundown, Many people have looked at this, and a traditional way to view the or to break up the verses is to look at this through five different time periods. The first time period is verses 3 through 14, and this is the master of the vineyard's first visit to the vineyard, where he notices that the original tame olive tree is withering away and dying. 
And so he breaks off some of the branches. He goes and plants them out in the vineyard so that he can save some of the tree. And then he takes some of the branches from wild olive trees out in the vineyard. He breaks those off and grafts them into the tame olive tree or places them in the tree and hopes that those strong wild branches will help nourish the roots of the original tree. That's the first time period. The second time period, he goes back to the vineyard. He checks on all of the fruit. He does that the second time. This is verses 18 through 28. Then he does it again in verses 29 through 49. And then he goes back for a fourth visit. This is verses 50 through 76, where he and this servant that's with him labor and they graft out and they bring grafts in um, in effort to try and save this original olive tree and by now save the other trees that are out in the vineyard that the master of the vineyard has now planted. And so the traditional approach to viewing this symbolically is these different visits can symbolize time periods. The first visit is the time before Christ when God looks at the earth and looks at the house of Israel and notices that they have drifted, that they have decayed. And so what's he going to do? He's going to break off branches of the house of Israel and plant them in other places in the vineyard or in other places in the world. A great example of this is, of course, the Book of Mormon and the family of Lehi and the family of Mulek and the family of the Jaredites being grafted into this new continent. In fact, if you want a really kind of fun verse, on the second visit, when the Lord of the vineyard goes back to check on the fruit, he notices that all of the fruit is good, except for one spot. And it just so happens to be the very best spot of land that he found. And so this is verse 25, and he says, he says to a servant, look hither and behold this last. Behold, this have I planted in a good spot of ground, and I have nourished it this long time, and only a part of the tree has brought forth tame fruit. And the other part of the tree is brought forth wild fruit. Behold, I have nourished at this tree like unto the other. So all the fruit in the vineyard is good, except for this one tree, which has good fruit and bad fruit. And we're always really quick to jump at that and say, there you go. Nephites and Lamanites planted in a good spot of land. That may very well be a good interpretation. We're going to flip it on its head in about two minutes. So hang on. When he goes back the third visit, so the second visit, the first visit is the time before Christ. The second visit, when he checks on all the fruit, is the time of Christ. The third visit, he goes back to the vineyard and sees that all of the fruit is bad. All the fruit is wild. And this uh, is often viewed as symbolic of the great apostasy. The fourth visit is symbolic of our day. And this is where he gathers in branches from out in the vineyard, grafts them back into the original tree, grafts more branches from the original tree back out into the vineyard. And this is uh, often viewed as symbolic of the scattering, the, the gathering of Israel. We're bringing those branches back into the tame tree. We're trying to gather in all of the good branches and prepare for, as he says at the very end of the chapter, the day when the master of the vineyard will burn his vineyard or purge it, get rid of all of the bad branches, all of the bad trees, and he saved up the good trees to himself or the good fruit to himself. So that fifth time period, the last couple of verses, is often viewed as the millennium part of the story, where the master of the vineyard has stored up the fruit to himself and purges the vineyard or purges the earth. Now, that's the traditional quote-unquote deep study of Jacob chapter 5. And it's interesting. It may very well be true. The scriptures are open to many different interpretations, and there's benefit in it. However, there's a couple of things that don't quite hold up, which I think hints that that might be a more eisegetical view of Jacob chapter 5. For example, the second time period, all of the fruit is good except for the Nephites and Lamanites, supposedly. 
However, at the time of Christ, all of the fruit in the world wasn't good. Christ was sent to an Israel that was, by and large, really struggling. They were in bondage physically to the Romans, and they're in bondage spiritually. And so to say that all of the fruit in the world was good doesn't really fit with that time period. Similarly, the next time period that is often associated with the Great Apostasy where all of the fruit is bad, during the Great Apostasy, and this may come as a news announcement or news alert to many of us, the world wasn't wicked for 1,800 years until Joseph Smith came on the scene. I've heard this, and I did this on my mission, and I've heard it repeated, and I think it it causes a lot of damage. That the story we a lot of times tell as Mormons is, well, when Jesus Christ and the apostles died, that was the last goodness on the earth. Then we went 1,800 years of this horrible, dark apostasy, and then light broke forth when Joseph Smith uh, was called upon to restore the gospel. Now, I don't argue that light was brought forth when Joseph Smith was called upon to restore the gospel, and I also don't argue that in those 1,800 years, priesthood power and authority was by degrees lost, uh, and that many people were searching for and hungering for a restoration of truths. However, there are some of the greatest Christian men and women the world has ever known that lived and taught and served and came closer to God in that quote-unquote great apostasy. Um, You've heard a lot of general authorities recently quoting from or telling the stories of some of these great Christians of the past. And if I can put a 30-second plug in to us as Mormons, friends, we've got to stop disowning the larger Christian heritage. We've got to stop discounting that. If we want to be Christians, if we want to be counted as Christians, we can lay claim and lay hold to these incredible stories. To say that the great apostasy was all wicked is to throw a lot of incredible Christian men and women under the bus and to do them a disservice, obviously, but to do ourselves a disservice. So that's a tangent. But third time period, not all of the fruit is wicked. So even though this traditional approach might be a helpful one, and there are some things about it that I really like, I don't know if that time period approach is the way Jacob meant it to be read. So how did he meant it to be read? How did he mean it to be read? Well, here's a hint. Jacob chapter 6, after he gets done telling the allegory, he turns the allegory back onto his listeners. Listen to this. This is verses 6 and 7 in chapter 6. Yea, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For why will ye die? For behold, after you have been nourished by the good word of God all the day long, will you bring forth evil fruit. Now, he's made a transition. He's not talking about the Jews that will reject Christ in a coming day. He's talking about the listeners of his writings, and he's applying it to them. After you have been nourished by the good word of God, Will you bring forth evil fruit? In other words, I think this story is about us. I think it's about you. I think it's about me. Remember, in the first couple of chapters of Jacob, Jacob just got done giving this pretty hard-hitting sermon where he takes his people to task for their greed and their pride and their unfaithfulness. If you want more of that, listen to our last episode. And so he gets done with that. And then he says this, this, we've read this verse already, but Jacob chapter five, verse three, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, 
If you've got a patriarchal blessing, you know that the most important part of that blessing is your declaration that you belong to the house of Israel. So cross that out uh, or long tap and put a note in, O house of Israel should be replaced with your name. I will liken thee, Zach, like unto a tame olive tree, which a man, God, took and nourished in his vineyard, and it grew and waxed old and began to decay. I think when he talks about that tree, I think he's talking about us. I have grown old. I have begun to decay. To go back to those verses we read in chapter 4, And now I, Jacob, am led on by the spirit of prophecy. For I perceive by the workings of the spirit which is in me, that by the stumbling of the Jews, take that out and put your name in, by the stumbling of Zach, that he will reject the stone upon which he might build and have a safe foundation. And I wish that wasn't true about me, but it is. Times in my life when I have rejected the stone or rejected his teachings or rejected his offer of forgiveness and repentance. And so verse 17, And now behold, my beloved, how is it possible that Zach, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of his corner? How can I build on this rock that I just keep rejecting in little or in big measures? How can I come back and build on this? And so Jacob answers that question with Jacob chapter 5, which for lack of a better phrase, is a, it's a love story. It's a story about how the master of the vineyard, the, the planter of this tree, can't bear to lose his tree. And so he's going to do everything and anything he can think of to save his tree. And so dive in with me here a couple of verses. This is verse 4 and 5 in chapter 5. It came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree, he saw me, that it began to decay. And he said, I will prune it, and I will dig about it, and nourish it, that perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches, and it perisheth not. And it came to pass that he pruned it, and he digged about it, and he nourished it according to his word. Now, later on in the chapter, he employs the services of a servant. And I've read a whole bunch of different things on who that servant is. Is it the prophet? Is it Jesus Christ himself? And we won't dive into that. But I do think it's interesting that in these first couple of verses, it is the master of the vineyard himself that is pruning, digging, and nourishing. He's hands-on with this original tree. Um, verses 8 and 9, Behold, saith the Lord of my vineyard, I will take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. And it mattereth not if it be that the root of this tree perish, that I may preserve the fruit thereof unto myself. Wherefore, I will take these young and tender branches of the original tree, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. So he's going to take branches of the olive tree, of me, and graft them out in the world. And then verse 9, uh, I will take branches of the wild olive tree and graft them in, in the stead thereof. And so if we're just to create a short list of things that God says he's going to do to save you, it is, he will prune, he will dig, he will nourish, he will take some of your branches and graft them out. He will take some of the branches from out there and graft them into you. And he will burn any of the, the bad branches or the, the branches that are producing bad fruit um, and preserve good fruit to himself. Now, if you really want a fun study, sit down, pause this right now, and just ask yourself, without hearing what I'm going to say next, just ask yourself, what does it mean that God 
is pruning me. Do I, do I see him doing that in my life right now? What does it mean that God is digging around me or nourishing me or grafting things into my, into my tree or grafting parts of me out? I'll give you my interpretation here in a second, but just think, what's, what's yours? Um, the, the pictures there are beautiful. And if you can picture a God doing that to you, I think maybe you could find some real truth for your relationship with God. If you want my interpretation, a quick one, and there's many more that we could add, but to prune and to burn kind of go together. God takes branches that are producing bad fruit that are dead and decaying and old, and he breaks them off and he throws them away. And I think God does this to us a lot where he will through promptings or through feelings or sometimes just through his own divine intervention, he will break things out of our life that are damaging us and hurting us and he'll burn them. And boy, it hurts when he does that because some of those bad branches, some of that wild fruit are the branches that we love the most. But that's what God's going to do to save the tree. So if you've had an experience recently where God has burned one of your branches, say thank you to him because he's trying to save your tree. He will dig and nourish. And when I looked at this, I thought this has to do with our environment, the soil that we're in. God will surround us with strength and with strengthening influences. And you just look around you and just see if you can see the hand of God in your circumstances, your family, your friends, your ward members. Is there someone sitting next to you on Sunday that has had a special ability to nourish your soil or to provide something to you? And then the third thing he does is he grafts out and he grafts in. He takes some of my branches and he takes them out into the vineyard and he brings some of those things from the vineyard and brings them back into my, into my tree. And so this might be symbolic of God taking things and inserting them into my lives. New experiences, new people, new ideas. He's taking some of these branches, maybe they're wild branches out there, and he's grafting them into my tree to give me strength. Um, and to give me maybe a fresh perspective and a new start. He's also, however, inviting me to take some of my branches and plant them somewhere else to <laughs> branch out and to spread things that I'm learning, things that I'm feeling, my experiences, my testimony, and spread it somewhere else. And the reason why is he knows that if I can take those branches, those experiences, and share them, it will save and strengthen my tree. It's the whole point of branching out and grafting in is to save my tree. Now, there are many more interpretations, and in your study, you're going to think of more that are more personal to you. But it at least proves this. God is actively, regularly, consistently working on you. He's working to save you. And if you want proof of that, look at the phrases he repeats over and over and over in this allegory. Verse 7, it came to pass that the master of the vineyard saw it, meaning the decay of his tree. And he said to a servant, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. That phrase, it grieveth me that I should lose this tree, shows up in verse 11, in verse 13, in verse 32, in verse 46, in verse 51, in verse 66. It grieveth me that I should lose this tree. I don't want to lose my tree. Uh, verse 20, came to pass that they went forth whither the master had hid the natural branch of the tree. And he said unto the servant, behold these. And he beheld the first that had brought forth much fruit. And he beheld also that it was good. And he said to the servant, take the fruit of thereof and lay it up against the season that I may preserve it unto myself. Here comes the line. For behold, said he, this long time have I nourished it. 
and it hath brought forth much fruit. That phrase, this long time have I nourished my tree, shows up in verse 20, in verse 22, in verse 23, in verse 24, in verse 25, in verse 27, in verse 28, in verse 29. This long time have I nourished my tree. And then maybe my favorite. This is verse 41. Came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept and said to a servant, what could I have done more for my vineyard? This is one of those literary things that... Um, Hebrew writers do a lot where they ask a rhetorical question because the answer is nothing. He's done all that he can do. In fact, verse 47, what could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened my hand that I have not nourished it? No, I've nourished it and I've digged about it and I've pruned it and I've dug, dunged it. I've stretched forth my hand almost all the day long and the end draweth nigh and it grieveth me that I should, that this tree should be hewn down in my vineyard and that they should be cast into the fire, that they should be burned. If you take nothing out of this episode, at least take this. There is a God in heaven and a Savior with him that love and care about you individually. Each tree is unique with unique branches, and they're actively working and striving to save you. So what do you do about this? Well, chapter 6, two verses that I really like. First, verse 4, And how merciful is our God unto us, for he remembers the house of Israel, both roots and branches, and he stretches forth his hands unto them all day long. I like the step one of this, which is to remember that God is stretching forth his hand all day long to you. And then the second thing that we can do with this, I think, is in verse 5, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I beseech you in the words of soberness that you would repent and come with full purpose of heart, and cleave unto God as he cleaveth unto you. Will you come cling to the master of the vineyard like he is clinging to you? You may have heard this story, but it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, Elder Hugh B. Brown told it once. He was out on his property one day, and he sees this little currant bush that's overgrown with branches, and so he cuts the currant bush down to a stump. And he says that he imagines, as he looks at that currant bush, he has this discussion with him. He imagines he sees a little tear on the stump and the currant bush saying to him, how could you do this to me? How could you cut me down when I was growing so big? I thought you were the gardener here. And Elder Brown says to the currant bush, I am the gardener here. And little currant bush, one day you will thank me in, for loving you enough to hurt you. Well, years pass. Elder Brown joins, uh, I believe it's the Canadian military, and he's up for promotion. He goes in to meet with the man, with the general that's in charge of his promotion, and that general informs him that even though he is qualified, he will not be promoted. Uh, the general is called out of the room, and Elder Brown looks on the desk, and he sees his paperwork on the desk, and stamped in big red letters across the paperwork is just the word Mormon. And so he goes back to his barracks and he throws his hat on the ground and clenches his fist at heaven. And he says, how could you do this to me? I've done everything you've asked. How could you cut me down like this? And then he hears his own voice coming back to him saying, oh, little currant bush, I am the gardener here. And one day when you're laden down with fruit, you will thank me for loving you enough to hurt you. Can I just end with my sincerest feeling 
that God is actively working in our lives to save us, to prune us, to dig about us, to nourish us. It pains him to lose us, and he will do everything in his power to save us. If we will cling to him, I think we will notice how tightly he's clinging to us. Thank you so much for being with me this episode. Next week, Krista will be back with me. We have so loved all of the comments and all of the feedback. Keep it coming. Questions, um, ideas, feedback, commentary, critiques, whatever. We love it. We love engaging with you. And we'll be excited to talk to you again next week.